Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Cheech Marine. Cheech was born in South Los Angeles. His family was tight-knit. What mattered to them was making sure Cheech went to school and got right with God. By the time he was in eighth grade, his plan was to become a priest. But that, well, that was before he tried smoking weed. Now, he didn't actually try it until he went away to college. It was a new world for him living away from home with friends. One night, somebody passed him a joint. It was the 60s. He got turned on. Not just to smoking pot, but eventually to the peace movement and the movement for Chicano civil rights. And at that point, becoming a priest wasn't really on the agenda. He was an artist. He met Tommy Chong, they started a double act, and the rest is history. Stoner history. Mexican Americans don't like to just get into gang fights. They like flowers and music and white girls named Debbie too. Mexican Americans are named Chata and Chela and Chema and have a son-in-law named Jeff. Of course, Cheech Marine isn't just half of Cheech and Chong. He was in The Lion King. He made 122 episodes of Nash Bridges. He was even, for a little while, the star of a Golden Girls spinoff. And let me tell you, if you are the right age for the Spy Kids movies, he will always be Fake Uncle Felix. What are you talking about? I was assigned to protect your family, but something's gone wrong. I have to take you to the safe house. My parents can't be spies. They're not cool enough. That's cool. Cheech is also a collector of Chicano art, probably the most prolific and significant collector in the world. He's been building up his treasure trove since the 80s, and now it's so large that he's opened his own museum, the Cheech Marine Center for Chicano Art and Culture in Riverside. He says you should call it the Cheech. Marine, of course, is also still acting, He's got a part in the new comedy, Champions, that's in theaters now, and he also just played alongside Jennifer Lopez in the movie Shotgun Wedding. That's about a couple and their families who've come together for the ultimate destination wedding. Only then, the bride and groom start to get cold feet, and also, the wedding is invaded by pirates. Here's a little bit of Shotgun Wedding. The pirates have taken captives, they have a list of demands... And the captives, well, I guess the captives have a, a counteroffer? Anyway, you'll hear Carol, she's the mother of the groom, played by Jennifer Coolidge, and Robert, who's the father of the bride, played by my guest, Cheech Marie. Robert, he's calling you again. Thanks, Carol. <clears throat> Let's get what do you want. Well, we call my colleague on the satellite phone, and you transfer $45 million to a bank account. I don't have that kind of money. We Googled you. Net worth is $60 million. 
I'm not giving you anything until I find out if my daughter's safe. And your son-in-law. Yeah, him too. <laughs> Chief Maureen, welcome to Bullseye. So so happy to have you here. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. And congratulations on being America's uh, film and television dad, Low These Past. At this point, like thirty-five years, <laughs> you know it's uh, you know you're you're really shocked into reality when uh, my agent called me for this movie. It's just uh, <clears throat> J Lo wants you to be her daddy. I said, really? I'll see if I can squeeze her in. But you know, I'm married, and <laughs> no, no, her father, you moron. <laughs> and so so I'm J Lo's father now. So that's great. Do you do you tire of uh, smiling gently at uh, children and grandchildren in films and television? Not at all. You know, I just I love it. You know, I live. You know, every every age has its 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 golden spot. You know, and you and the longer you live, the sweeter that spot gets. You know, for me, anyways. I mean, Champions is also a very sweet movie, and you get to be very sweet, and it's nice to watch you do it. It's the same with the, all those uh, like the Spy Kids movies. Yeah. Like I hadn't, I hadn't watched those Spy Kids movies as a kid because I was just a little too old for it. But then my kids got into them. They're so pleasant and fun. You know, they're just such a pleasant vibe, it, it, and they're smart and funny. I met Robert Rodriguez a, a, a long time ago. And he was, I think, he was still in college where he just made his first film, uh, Mariachi, which was, you know, a student film. And uh, so I had this thing out uh, that I was reminded of today. Uh, Cheech the Bus Driver was a record, and it was children's stuff. And and so there was a lot of interest in some studios of making uh, something, you know, with an animated or a movie. And so I says, uh, they, they, they came to me and said, well, who would you like to direct this? And I said, Robert Rodriguez. And they looked at me and said, are you out of your mind? He's all blood and guts. I said, no, no, no. He has the guy this. with the machine gun and the violin case? Guy, <laughs> you know, blows your head off? No. And, and I said, he has this other side of him that's just children standing. Eh, get him out of it. Because that's the first thing I ever saw when, he, when, when I met him. He showed me this little uh, film he made. It was a student film with his brothers and sisters. And it was called Bedhead. And it was like, it was Spy Kids. You know, and, he, and it's, but nobody ever saw it. And so after Spy Kids came off, uh, came out, and I said, "So who's laughing now?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're uh, you're originally from Los Angeles. You grew up in South LA and the Valley, right? Yeah, yeah half and half. W- which half and which half? Uh, South Central, thirty six and San Pedro. If you want to go, go look it up. Uh, for the first half, until I was. Can I just give a shout out to all people that give their intersection when they? Because it's I'm the I'm like 15th and Guerrero. Like, yeah, baby. immediately. Like <laughs> you know, where, where are you from? 15th and Guerrero. Boy, you know, and that's a way to specifically identify. You know, because when I was first out on with Cheech and Chong and and be in other parts of the country, and they would ask me that same where'd you grow up? And but well. Uh, South Central. So you mean like Watts? And so that was their concept. Of, yeah, 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 Watts. It's just a shortcut to say, yeah, it was all black neighborhood. And so uh, later on, you know, when I w- came to do in movies and they, and some, there would be some reporters, you know, oh, yeah, what part of South Central are you from? Uh, 36 in San Pedro. Oh. <laughs> You you get it you know now it's it was all mostly all black then, and then then now it's all uh, Salvadorian 
uh, and then that then then we moved from there to Granada Hills in the San Fernando Valley. And so one day everybody was black, and then the next day everybody was white. And I was a Chicano in both, you know. So how do you navigate that? You <laughs> try to be nice to everybody. Did your have family have a relationship to uh, the? Chicano culture in LA that was already really vibrant. Like there was plenty of yeah. Mexicans born in America. Yeah. It was uh, called my family. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of community? I, I had a 63 cousins, you know, or something like, I mean, it was, it was you know, but I went to all black schools and uh, Trinity street school. I don't know if you know. But like, was there like Masa at the grocery store oh, yeah. by yeah, your house? Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, there was. You had to go find it, but mostly you didn't want to find it there. You wanted to find it in Islos or, or someplace like that. Your father was a police officer, he right? He was. Uh, 30 years, LAPD. What was it like to have a dad who was a police officer in, uh, let's say, turbulent times? Well, it was good and bad, you know? It's like he used it uh, for like, well, my dad's a cop and he can throw you in jail uh, when you're a little kid to, uh, you know, the, there was always a lot of angst in, in the neighborhood being a Chicano cop in an all-black neighborhood. So, But, you know, they, you got to see the police department really up close because I grew up at the police academy. And you saw that there was, was good guys and bad guys, you know, overwhelmingly good guys. You know, they were doing their job and they were. But uh, that was kind of my family's profession. It, they were either law enforcement or clergy. So I don't know. <laughs> were you a goody two-shoes? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I was an altar boy. I was in the choir. I got the religion award. I was headed for the priesthood. I, I, I was going to the junior seminary in Montebello. I was going to be a diocesan priest or Vincentian priest. And uh, I started going to parties be- after I graduated from eighth grade that summer. And I said, wait a minute, let me get wait, this. You were, hold up. You were headed for the priesthood when you were in eighth grade? About to go to high school, yeah. I, the junior seminary I was supposed to go. I didn't know there was a. That's like that's like under 18s basketball. <laughs> like, no, no. You uh, the, the junior seminary is where you went to uh, like JROTC or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That about for a priest, you know. And many members of my family did that. And uh, were I, you doing it because of how much you loved God, or because it was just you were just rolling down that hill? I it was mo- mostly that. You know, I was just rolling down the hills. But I was very religious. I mean, I was an altar boy and choir. I sang in the choir and all. And I got the religion. That was a big deal. I got the religion award. So they were like almost being pushed in that direction. And my cousins were either priests or nuns or had gone to the junior seminary, went on to be priests. And, uh, uh, you know, so it was, it, was, it was fairly usual because I don't know if anybody else had this experience, but in Catholic school, they drill that into you every day that you're going to get a vocation and wait for the God's going to talk to you and you're going to be a priest. And <laughs> they drilled it into you every day. Well, I mean, I also imagine, I mean, I'm speaking for you here, but uh, perhaps you never heard the call. Uh, no, no, it was more like an echo uh-huh. <laughs> from was, your cousin's yeah. house. Oh yeah, they were all both of, both of my older cousins, Louis and Regine. Uh, they went to the Franciscan Junior Seminary in Santa Barbara, and they were going to be a Franciscan priest uh, until they both dropped out. Regine actually went all four years, and he was uh, 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 a student body president. He was headed for the priesthood, and he dropped out. Uh, eventually, he landed in Harvard uh, on a full scholarship and and became the first PhD in Chicano studies from Harvard University. So there was a real fast crowd that I was I was you know running with, and that's how I got all my education and everything. 
So when you started getting into partying, I guess it must have been the mid-60s, huh? Sure. Uh, when did I go? Yeah, mid-60s. Oh, that was when I was in college. Okay. In mid-60s. So the early 60s then. Uh, so what was the scene like in the early 60s? My dad lived lived in Glendale, mm-hmm. and I found out as an adult that his main thing, he went to Berkeley. He was an A student. His main thing was... Uh, doing speed and stealing his parents' car, driving to the beach from Glendale, partying at the beach all night, then driving back in the morning before his parents woke up and going to school. That's living on the line. Yeah. (laughs) You know, my dad was a policeman, you know, and I feared death more than I feared Yeah, I don't know if my my CPA grandfather really could have. Yeah, no, I was, it was very clear what the, what the uh, expectancy was, you know, so. No, I was, I was a really strict guy. I was a real, we were very academic kids. We all went to Catholic school. And so my older, the oldest cousin, Louie, formed us in a little group and, and basically started what came to be AP classes. And he assigned each one of us as topics to go learn about and bring back to the group. And I got assigned art. That's how I learned about art from there. So, well, how do you do that? Uh, you go to the library and you take out all the library. You don't even take out the library books because they wouldn't let the kid take them out, but they would bring them in front of me and then turn them over page by page. And that's how I learned about Western art. So, okay. So tell me what, leaving the straight and narrow meant for you? Like, at what point did you deviate from this path of this family home study group, this ad hoc home study group that you were doing and the going to the junior priest school and everything? Uh, as soon as I could. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, like, I was finally off the leash. You know, I was on, in college and I was living in an apartment with a bunch of guys. And and uh, I came home one night and there was, there was a party going on. That wasn't unusual. There was always parties going on. And uh, very smoky in the apartment. And my, my roommate handed me this, this cigarette. And I said, what, what is this? You know I don't smoke. And so I says, no, man, it's a joint. Uh, what, what's a joint? Uh, you're, we- you're, you're doing a bit here. You knew what a joint was. I didn't know what a joint was. The only thing I know about uh, marijuana is seeing it on, in, in the newspapers. And they were always busting some guy and they, with a trunk open and a big bale of hay in the back of it. You know, that's and my, my dad said, if you ever do any of this, I will kill you myself. Okay. I, I believed him, you know, because he was that kind of guy. And um, no, I was just, I was a very, very, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school all my life, you know. And, and but then I was off the leash and went to Cal State North. It was Valley State then. It wasn't even Cal State North. It was Valley State. And so he says, it's a joint of marijuana. And I go, oh. He says, try it. I said, okay. Hey, I'm off the leash. And took a big hit. And then the joint went around the room. And, and by the time it got to me back to me, I was I was high, and I go and what else have they been lying about? <laughs> um, well, how aware were you in the mid sixties? We're talking about before you before you moved out of the states, which you did mm-hmm. eventually, which is where you met Tommy Chong. Mm-hmm. Um, how aware were you of the uh, of the Chicano civil rights movement? It was just starting. It was just started. It was the it was the black civil rights movement that really took over camp, campuses at the time, and SGS uh, uh, that that movement, which was a had a big strong chapter at Valley State, and because they were all red diaper babies, you know, from uh, from their parents, who were 
were the, were the were the commies of their day, you know. And so it was it was it was very strong in that campus. And so that's we had this string of speakers that stopped there and and did their speech at, at our campus, and it was very influential to me. Uh, Reyes Tiarina would come, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, Floyd McKissick, and uh, but the guy that made the most impression, um, the biggest impression on me was David Harris, and he came through with the the draft resistance movement, and it just boom rung a bell with me. Okay, this is the way to go. The universal soldier, don't participate in the thing. And so I joined the draft resistance movement, turned in my draft card, and uh, it, w- <laughs> it went on a speaking tour with David Harris and Joan Baez, his new wife, uh, um, around the country, and it was on the cover of Newsweek magazine. And if you look very closely, you can see my draft card pasted on there in the corner, you know. And so then we uh, all did that, but it coincided at the same time with me discovering pottery. Really? I took a, I took a you know— wheel class uh-huh. shout out to the barnstall art center <laughs> mm. and and i could not throw a pot oh i could not get that i could not get that clay to come up right yeah on at center. all at all not even close it is it is a, a a craft that you learn if you have enough patience to do it but it, it once you center your first piece of clay and you put it it centers you physically centers you and I remember that feeling. I want, I want this feeling all the time. And I kept, I gave up. I quit all my other classes, quit my job, got a $900 NEDA loan. I lived on that and then made pottery all day, every day. I mean, that is a bold move for a dude whose dad is a cop. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Well, I was off the lease. <laughs> you, know, you shouldn't let those kids off the lease if you want them to come back. Did your family know about what was going on with you? Were you excommunicated? Were you encouraged to spend your days making pottery? Uh, you know, I, I was disconnected to my family just during that period. My parents were going through a divorce at the same time, so it was like very chaotic. And I was living on my own, and, and I didn't inform I imagine them. an extra big deal with Catholic parents. Oh, yeah, you know, because— because I was supposed to be a priest, and now I'm making pottery. Where do we fail you? <laughs> it didn't fail me at all. I had, I you know, I I I've learned over the years. Over the years, is if opportunity presents itself, and there's an open door, and you have a second to recognize it and walk through the door. And so, if your instincts are trained and honed, you walk through the door. And that's what I've done all my life, you know. It's recognizing that that the possibility when it presents itself. Were you already performing at this point? I was always a performer. I made my first record when I was five years old, singing little Mexican songs. Amortito corazón. I had this little this little squeaky voice, but I could sing in tune. You know, so my mother had this friend who had this little record company, and so I made direct-to-disc recordings of these of these songs. You know, so I was always it was natural to me, and I was sang in school, and I was in the choir all the time. So yeah, performing was another part that was just came instinctively to me. What about acting or being funny? Funny, yeah. I had a I had a very funny family. And they were very quick-witted, and you had to have your A material if you wanted to get any time at the dinner table, you know, to interject your little uh, views of life. And uh, and so I had to, you know, compete with a lot of really smart, intelligent, very fast people. And so I honed my skills. So I knew I was funny. I knew I could be funny. And uh, and that just I just took that for granted, and just like I, I took singing for granted, you know. 
We've got more from my conversation with Cheech Marine still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is comedy legend Cheech Marine. Now, Cheech isn't just an actor. He's also an art collector with a huge collection of Chicano art. He's been buying it since the 80s. And at this point, it's way, way more stuff than he could fit on the walls of his house. Or the walls of pretty much any house. So when the Riverside Art Museum told him that there was an empty library in Riverside that they might be able to get into, Marine was listening. They teamed up, and in a few years, they'd built it. The Cheech Marine Center for Chicano Art and Culture. 60,000 square feet of Mexican-American art. They call it, for short, the Cheech. Let's get into the rest of my conversation with Cheech Marine. You moved to Canada uh, because of your objection to the draft mm-hmm. and the war. But uh, equally, to be a potter. Is that so? Yeah. I was I was in the middle of the draft thing, and, and uh, they were coming to get us, you know, because Hershey issued its directive that, who was the director of the draft at the time, uh, that's directed if anybody who, who turned in their draft cards or burnt them or protested at the draft would be immediately reclassified, drafted, and sent to the front lines in Vietnam. That was his, his fix. Good luck on that one. Uh, everybody knew it was a First Amendment issue, and it would be— Thrown out of court, which it did eventually, but you were going to spend three or four years in Leavenworth, which is where they were sending everybody to wait their decision. Uh, but at the same time, I discovered pottery. And I, my pottery teacher, Howard Tollison, big shout out to Howard, uh, doing my predicament. He says, well, I have this ex-student who's opening up a pottery in, in Canada, in, in Alberta. It's maybe he needs an assistant. That was all I needed. I got on the dog and and went to uh, Calgary, Alberta, and you know I thought that this was going to I thought it was going to be like Sergeant Preston and the Yukon is going to be met like a sled dog with huskies, and it looked like Bakersfield, you know. <laughs> it is pretty. I mean, like real talk though. Like I've been to Calgary; it's pretty Bakersfield. Yeah, exactly. Like it, like Canadian Dallas. Yeah. Bakersfield, like oil towns, big flat places. Until you got to the Rockies. Yeah. <laughs> it was flatter than a tortilla there. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, okay, well, this is good. But I met this potter who was a young guy and, and helped him build his pottery. And when he, when he built it, he couldn't afford to hire me because he was just done. So I says, but I know this other potter. He's actually a very well-known potter. He lived in Bragg Creek about 11 miles away. Maybe he needs an assistant. And so I got up in the morning, put on my cowboy boots, and started walking. And uh, hitchhiked a little bit, and went up to this, found this guy uh, where his his st- studio was. His name was Ed Drahanchuk, and he had just won the bicentennial exhibition award the day, uh, the year I got there. Pretty famous for pottery, and I and I walked up to a, up to his studio and started talking until he hired me. And so I says, "When can you start?" I said, "I can start right now." He says, "Okay, start cleaning these bricks over there," and that's what I did for. Uh, and I was in, in the foothills of the Rockies in the provincial park in Bragg Creek, and made pottery. Did they have masa at the grocery store? Not at all. 
<laughs> they had no Maasai in it. They, they, they were stuck with a predicament that all Canadians that I met in this t- period were stuck with. Was like, they looked at me and go, what are you? Because they had, ne- had no idea of Mexicans or Chicanos. Either. Are you Indian or American Indian? Are you East Indian? And they, but they looked at me all the time. Like, what, what, do, do you speak English? A little, little bit, mister. <laughs> you know, it was, it was funny to me. So how did you end up leaving the world of making fine art pottery behind uh, in favor of doing a music comedy act, two-hander in strip clubs or whatever? Oh, that's a natural progression. Sure. Thought, no, is is uh, uh, I in this little town, Bragg Creek, that during the winter there was maybe 10 people who lived there. And they had one restaurant. It was called the Steak Pit. Gordy Schultz and his wife had it. And it was a, you know, steak restaurant. And and, and Gordy was a, a jazz player. He played bass and, and, and his brother – and he played sax and his brother and, and, and his sister-in-law that was – had a little Diana dance trio there at the restaurant. And I used to – there was the only place to go, <laughs> first of all. And then I used to go there at night and sing with them. Because I, I knew all those tunes, you know, I knew all that. I grew up with them. And so that was great. So, like, I started being, you know, lured into the the evil world of show business again. <laughs> and these uh, this trio wanted me to go on tour with them. And so we're going to Hawaii next. That's great, but that's in the United States, and I can't go back there because they're, I'm wanted. And so, you know, so I, I got uh, set up to, uh, I was waiting to be set up with a tour of the Northwest Territories, I guess, you know, me and a guitar and, and singing songs. And, uh, but then I was waiting in Banff, uh, uh, in Alberta, and, and I knew a girl there that I met, and she said, well, you can stay here while you're doing that. And so I, after a while, she goes, you ever think of getting a job? I go, I've thought about it, but, you know. And so he says, well, they need a fry cook up in uh, the uh, Sunshine Village. And so I did that. And I did that until I broke my leg badly skiing because I never, you know, I was skiing for the first time in my life. And speed, who needs to stop, man? You never skied in not, South LA? No, not, not, not a bunch. I skated a lot. No. Skated not even, by. Not even in the valley. <laughs> not huh? even in the valley, man. There's a, no, so I and I, I compound fractured my leg, and I was like, it was bad, and I was in the hospital for months with a broken leg, you know. So when I got out of there, my my roommate in 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 Banff said, "Hey, well, let's go to Vancouver. That's where I'm from. We'll hang out there and see what's happening." And so eventually, I met. Uh, I got turned on to Tommy Chong by the editor of this magazine that I was writing for at the time, uh, a rock and roll magazine called Poppin, and he says, "There's this guy." Uh, doing this weird theater thing in the, in the strip bar in Chinatown. Yeah, sounds good. And so I went down there to check it out, and it was it was the first strip club in Vancouver. It was the first total naked. Uh, right where I was intrigued, and <laughs> and uh, and so I, I looked at that, and I and I convinced him that I was this great. Improv actor from LA and had I improved a resume. And they said, Well, that sounds good to me. And he hired me as a writer for this group. And so I started writing for this group and then I be, became part of the group. I acted on. So the group fell apart, but it was a real strip bar. I mean, not, you know, like <laughs> a gentleman's club. No, it was a strip bar, you know. And uh, it was loggers and, and bikers and, you know, uh, hardcore guys. And, uh, we changed the, the the club overnight from a strip bar to naked improv. 
what I'm imagining yeah. that I'm wrapping my head around mm. is you, mm. a small Chicano man. Yes. A, an American mm. here in Canada. Tommy Chong, uh, half white, half Asian Canadian man. Mm-hmm. Both of you long hairs mm-hmm. in this strip club. I mean, you must have been space aliens to these. Like, what were you doing that was, what What was the thing that you found that could land with people who had come to see you, like when you had gone to see Tommy Chong and with guys that were coming in to see a strip show? Naked women. Uh-huh. I mean, <laughs> you, know, when you-, it's, you know, the original Upright Citizens Brigade in, yeah. in, in New York was in a strip club. Yeah. But- it, they had closed the strip club before yeah. they opened the comedy theater, we, so it was just people who thought it was still a strip club and were confused. It we, wasn't people who were all who were also seeing strip. Clubs. Yeah, no, no, we incorporated it. And, and what I realized that after a while, that what we were real, really doing was classic burlesque strippers and comedians. Except the the uh, the comedians in this point were uh, uh, improv actors. And the audience dug it as long as we got to the stripping part eventually, you know. And there was like, oh, and then we started attracting an audience. And then we started getting reviewed by the papers, you know. Like, they didn't like us, but they reviewed us. You know, it took them two pages to give us a review. And so we started attracting this audience. And just as, just as we did, everybody in the group quit because they wanted to go to the hills and get their heads together. And I had been to the hills. My head was together. Um, my pocketbook wasn't together. So Tommy calls me after uh, one night and he says, look, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start a, a duo, me and you. You're a singer. I'm a guitar player. Because he, he was with Motown for many years. Well, a big hit song, too. And he says, we'll do uh, uh, some some bits and then we'll play R&B and then we'll do some more bits. And I said, uh, maybe we can get a gig in Vegas in one of the lounges. Uh-huh, that sounds good to me, but we had to go back to L.A. to do that and where I was wanted by the FBI. So it was, you know, a little, little dicey. So I, I took all the precautions. I got my friend's <laughs> photo ID, his driver's license with his picture on it, and then crossed back in the United States. And I go, okay, Brown, go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you think this was a burlesque act? Like, did you think you were touring like you would have been touring with the jazz band from BAMP singing standards or whatever? Like, did you think you were going to be going and playing lounges and doing something that everyone would like? Or did you think that you were going to be making something that cool people would like that would make you famous comedians? You know, which were you shooting for? I was shooting, our goal, right when we started, we had to get our hands on $1.50 every day. That was my goal. Because with $1.50, we could make some kind of Chinese meal, beef and greens with rice, and we could live, we could eat. Uh, That was our goal, really. And so we, we went around town, walking around, pulling the little red wagon with us. As this is honestly got true. The little red, to pick up pop bottles in empty lots, and you could, they had a three cent deposit or something. And at the end of the day, we had a dollar fifty, even if we didn't get a gig. Uh, we I knew right away that we had something that was different. People reacted to it if they could see it. And so it was eventually we were going to do something with it because it was different than anything else that was out there. And also that when we came back into L.A., we only played black clubs, you know, because that's Tommy knew the black clubs from uh, Motown. And I knew black clubs from having lived there for, you know, so, so we were doing material that was appealing to that audience. 
you know and and weed was was the uh, the, the common the commonality yeah so and, when did you find that was the theme right away right away they didn't know in canada they didn't know anything about chicanos uh you know but so but the weed yeah that really connected so it wasn't until we got back to la that the material about the upholstery and lowriders started yeah, hitting. It, it started you know exactly that and and so we were we were out and we we're struggling at first you know to kind of connect with the audience and we were playing as a, a gig out in the valley on Reseda Boulevard and, and and it was a rock and roll club and and we were doing okay but it wasn't and so we were Tommy and I were standing in front of the club in between shows and we said well what are we gonna do and this car pulled up and said, well Lord is hey man you know where Reseda Boulevard is yeah you're on it hey I told you <laughs> and they took off and, and Tommy goes. When we go back and to do the show, the the bit in the car with me and you, do it like a Chicano. Do do it like these guys. Okay, got it. We went back and and the club stopped. I mean, really, this is it. the club stopped. The music stopped. People came from all all parts of the club to sit. And hey, rousing reaction and okay, this is the direction that we're going in this direction because it's everybody responded to it. If you as a kid had. Talk that way, been that yeah. way in your household, what would happen? Nothing, you know, <laughs> because it depends on which side of the family. I had a lot of cousins, you know, they're they all over the place. And, and But, you know, at least three or four of my uncles were uh, uh, policemen, LAPD. My um, Uncle Rudy, oh, this is a great story, my Uncle Rudy de Leon, who uh, uh, always was Uncle Rudy, he became the highest-ranking Chicano in, in the force. He was the first captain of Hollenbeck, and they've named the Hollenbeck station after him. It's the Rudy, you see a plaque there, if you go, uh, the Rudy de Leon. Uh, and it wasn't <laughs> in typical Chicano fashion. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I just, uh, was told that he really wasn't my uncle. Uncle Rudy's... N not my uncle. You know, all Chicanos are all uncles. They're all your uncle. You know, Robert Rodriguez introduces me to his kid, kids as Uncle Cheech. And they're all, oh, hi, Uncle Cheech, every time I go there. And uh, so it's like, okay, well, this is shifting ground here. But uh, your parents also, it, there's a point at which, and I learned this when I visited my stepmother's family in Northern Ireland, where there's, there's a certain number of brothers and sisters that you cannot be expected to be responsible for all of them. Yep. <laughs> You're like, okay, this is I, 99%, this is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is this Frank? I think this is Frank. I, you never know. And just, okay, you just nod. You know, okay, that's your uncle. Okay, he's my uncle. And I, I was into my 40s. He's not my uncle. What's, what's going to the whole world shift in? So I, okay, we're in that zone right now. Okay. So it was okay. You know, but it was, it was, it was eye opening. Was your gigantic mustache real? Uh, yeah. Had it, uh, when I left Canada and we came back to L.A., I started growing a mustache. And then Tommy and I were together and we were looking for gigs and what to do. And this is agent says, well, I got this movie that they're trying to cast and they, you might be great for it. And so I went in to read for it. And the guy says, you know, it could be, a, let's see without the mustache. Okay. And so I went home, I shaved off my mustache and, and he says, eh, no, nah, I don't think you're right for the part. And I said, well, you, dude. Yeah, <laughs> and that was the last time I had it for the next 40 years, you know. I got to tell you, I watched uh, Up in Smoke last night, mm -hmm. and you look great in that movie. 
Oh. That mustache looks good on you. The hat looks good on you. You even pull off the halter top pretty well. You know, it, and it was, it, it came out of observation what I was seeing. I, I designed all the, not designed, I put together all my own costumes because I would observe what was happening, you know, around that, that kind of half t-shirt with, with the suspenders, with the red suspenders and my, my original touch with khakis, you know, high-waisted khakis. Mostly to hide my love handles, you know. <laughs> you were pretty, you, I, honestly, there's a, there's a shirtless scene in Up in Smoke. Yeah. And I was like, look at, look at Cheech. This dude's this dude's pretty yoked. This good dude's in good shape. You know, I was an athlete all my life, too, in addition to all this other stuff. I played every sport and worked out. And Tommy was a bodybuilder. He was a real bodybuilder with all those guys, Schwarzenegger at the Muscle Beach and, and Dave Draper and all those guys. What's what's amazing about that outfit that you wear in that, that like, classic Cheech and Chong Cheech outfit uh-huh. is it's clean. Like, you look good, uh-huh. right? It is also not very far from a clown suit. Yeah. <laughs> like the red suspenders and the high pants and that like I'm not even I'm not like it really gives you a form and a shape that's funny. Yeah. I I mean, you know, I I've been repeating this lately because I'm kind of coming to the realization of what it was is that we were both deep and shallow at the same time with the same material. <laughs> Yeah. And that is the mark of true genius. And I, it's it's like double funny too, just physically with your kind of Pachuco Cholo lean back, yeah, yeah. you know, drop back a drop back a shoulder. Uh-huh. Like it really what the same thing that makes it cool, right? Yeah. Is it's funny. Is funny. It's funny. Yeah. You just five percent more of it and you, it's funny. You know, and that is really the truth, you know, and I, and and I do it intuitively from observation. I don't like say, well, what do, would this guy look like? I just kind of put together what the guy looks like or talks like or walks like, you know. And it was just intuitive to me, like most things. It was what I was talking about before, you know, and and that leads to opportunity. When you recognize opportunity, go for it, you know. So, And Tommy, you know, Tommy was (laughs) still to this day, he comes up with the most outrageous ideas and you kind of look at him like, okay, you know, but there's one in there that's going to be shallow and deep at the same time, you know, and that's that's a mark of genius, really. We had uh, a year or two ago, Chaz Bajorquez on the show and he lives in Mount Washington, which Mm -hmm. is right, right next to that neighborhood. And he was talking about the way that, like, that neighborhood and its world, Northeast Los Angeles Mm -hmm. specifically, was how distinct it was from East L.A. and South L.A. Um, And he's like, you would never confuse it with Boyle Heights. Whole other thing, you know, whole other. For him, it was about graffiti styles and, you know, the gangs that they represented as well. But, like... Each of those places, a whole other place. And like L.A. in, in the movies. Yeah. It's, it's the beach. Yeah, you go to Beverly Hollywood, Hills. Hollywood, Beverly yeah, Hills. Exactly. And maybe you get a, a story about South or East L.A. that's about it. That's that's a awful tragedy about someone getting yeah. shot or whatever. Yeah. It was <laughs> my neighborhood. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They were really just, but they were never portrayed on uh, in, on TV or any, any kind of media, with even writing, you know, the only, the only the media they were in was newspapers. <laughs> the guy with a trunk open and a bale of hay in there, you know, and yeah, it was very distinct. And, and, but you, we kind of incorporated that intuitively. Uh, as a representation of L.A. It's like, I mean, it, it was meant to, there were certain 
certain aspects of our career and my career that it's, they were meant to be. And I just don't get in the way. That's the genius, the don't get in the way of something that is meant to be. When I moved to Canada, when I moved to Calgary, I moved into the exact neighborhood that Tommy Chong was born and raised in. And I started hearing stories about him because he was the most famous guy just before Cheech and Chong when he was with Motown to come out of there. So I don't know why I was gravitated or gravitated towards that uh, that area, but it was. I was. And so I, I kind of trusted that, you know. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Cheech Marine. He's in the new films Champions and Shotgun Wedding. We were talking before we went on the air about my, my mom used to work at the Mexican Museum in San Francisco. And at the Mexican Museum, they had a lot of Mexican art. Uh-huh. That is uh, uh, art created by Mexicans in Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, and you've pretty much always focused on Chicano art, Mexican-American uh-huh. art. Uh-huh. Why was that? I because it was something new. I should say as a co- as a collector, which as a collector, yeah, yeah. you're a you're a pretty major collector. You know, the, I, I I knew about Western art. I was edu- self educated in that for a long time, and I other other arts too. My the gap in my knowledge artistically or art art wise was contemporary art, and I didn't really I knew some names. I knew up to modern art, but contemporary I didn't know. But I was married to a painter at the time, and she started taking me uh, Patty uh, uh, to these uh, contemporary galleries in Santa Monica and other places. And that's where I discovered these Chicano artists, uh, Chaz Bojorquez being one of them, uh, Carlos Almaraz and those four and those guys. And I recognized what it was right away. I could see the the foundations and the influence that they that created Chicano art because all of these painters and these artists were uh, art school and or university trained. They weren't naive, you know, hobbyist kind of. They were incorporating international elements all the time in their art. And I go, that's just, it's, you know, what it was for me, it was like hearing the Beatles for the first time. You've heard this music before. There was Jerry Lee Lewis in there. There was Elvis. There was Fats Domino. But it was English, you know? And so it gave it this whole other spin. And and, and that's what Chicano art did for me and these artists. It's just, this is world art, but it's Chicano. I, I saw where they were going. And so and so I said, well, I'm, I, I, it was a perfect storm. I knew what the art was. I had money to collect it. And I had a, a celebrity in order to proselytize for it eventually. And so I, I started buying the art, you know. And, I, and from as early as I can remember, I was a collector of something. Uh, stamps, bottle caps, uh, baseball cards, everything. I buy. I'd, I'd collect them all and get the whole set, you know, that, that mentality. And so I started buying. Uh, buying as soon as you, you, you buy one piece of Chicano art, all the Chicano artists know there's a live one out there. <laughs> and, and so I got, in, and I was the only guy that out there that was collecting on that scale, but that could collect big pieces, you know, 24 by 12 foot mural sized pieces. You're not going to put it over your couch or over your bedroom. You know, usually it goes to storage, but I was, I was unique in that aspect. So I just kept kept going. And there was nobody else out there. You know, I wasn't battling other zillionaires for the latest piece of uh, contemporary art. So what what was the first piece that you bought that, uh, you know, got pride of place? What was the first thing that was like over your sofa or your mantelpiece? Well, like the one that you looked at every day, the first one that you looked at every day? I, I bought a bunch of them at the same time, you know, and <clears throat> there was a big uh, uh, Carlos Almaraz car crash 
painting, the sunset crash. And then and it was, you know, I made various leaps in my purchasing power over the over the years. And and okay, they want twenty thousand dollars for them. All right. And I leapt, you know, and, and you, I, it was like I was the only guy out there buying Impressionist art. When the Impressionists were like, I knew what it was. I knew what it was going to be. And that was that was the important. I knew what it was going to be because it was inevitable. Uh, this was great art. Describe that picture for me. It, the Sunset Crash is, is a car uh, uh, going off the freeway when they had bi-level freeways. One was higher, one was lower. And it's crashing on the on the freeway below in a fiery explosion and and I had seen that as a kid uh, there was you know the 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 freeway that led out of downtown LA to like Whittier and Norwalk was one of the, and I saw cars go over that thing and it scared the out of me when I was a kid and I was like oh, the fiery crash and it could happen and so every time we got on the freeway I was saying every kind of rosary that you could please please don't let that happen to me and I was terrified but it was alluring at the same time you know like did you see that wow that made a big explosion and blah and it was like and then I saw it represented in painting I go okay this is not only my greatest fears and 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 sorts of Joy, uh, I'll take this one. I, I'll, I'll go from spending fifteen hundred dollars or two thousand dollars on a painting to twenty thousand dollars, and it was it was a big leap. Was it kind of weird and scary to think that you were like a show business guy that was in galleries buying art, like a fancy art dude? Yeah, no, not at all. I've, I felt right at home there. You know, I just like because I was raised with art, unbeknownst to anybody. I was, you know, I, I okay, I could. A lot of people, guys, you know, they get bunny and they buy you the the Ferrari or the Lamborghini or the you know whatever that is. I was never interested in cars, you know, and I. But I was always interested in art, and so hmm, this is something I can own that I can that is really particular, you know, to me, and that hasn't had a big uh, a showing anywhere. But it but it caught up really quick, you know. People started getting interested in it, so and there was others other collectors started to emerge. The big battle was getting into museums. You know, because uh, the official attitude of museums was, oh, this is agitprop folk art. And so every artist that I told that to that was action, they always had the same reaction. What's agitprop folk art that I'm doing? <laughs> Chaz Bohork is being one of them, man, you know, who was the inventor of graffiti art. When you collect art yeah. uh, and you got more than you can put up in your house or you just want to share it with people, you send it out places. You you know you call up the Dallas Museum of Art and say you say would you like to Cezanne for a little while? Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, when uh, there was no other place to put it, it got put in storage. And so I started making friends in the art community, and I started showing this collection. I says, "Well, this is a great collection. You got to show it. You could, it doesn't you no good under the bed or in the closet. You got to show it. Well, how do you do that? Well, you got to get a show and then go to a museum. So, well, how do you do that? What are the? And but so it's a lot of museums will not make a show of one person's stuff because theoretically that person could be doing that in order to get the stamp on the back of their yeah. picture from the you know SF MoMA and then sell it afterwards for more because it was exhibited at that SF MoMA. That was always the attitude. That was always the attitude. And my only argument against this was 
well, I have this collection because you don't. And there wasn't any argument. <laughs> it was, there was no re- witty retort to that, you know. Well, okay. But when I put together a, a significant collection, I, I, I realized, as well, if you want to put together a traveling show, you have to have sponsors. I mean, because it's a very expensive proposition, you know. I mean, everybody think, well, you just call the museum and they come and nah, nah, and that's a very expensive proposition. So I, I went around and started looking for, for sponsors. I was hooked up with a with a, a company called Evergreen in San Antonio, and they had they were doing big museum shows, but mostly kind of interactive uh, natural history kind of stuff. And so we started going to every corporation, corporate headquarters in the United States, General Mills, General Motors, anything with a general in it. We were out there, you know, tap dancing. And eventually the Target stores and Hewlett Packard put together the seed money to make the first show. And uh, then the, the Target store stayed with it because it was a perfect storm. You know, if, if Joe Blow had exactly the same collection and he went to a museum that's great joe blow but you know how are we going to sell this if chich maringos the well-known name goes to the thing it's a different story uh, they're still putting their heads in the block which they don't want to do the museum directors because this is the official like you say imprimatur like this really exists this is a, a legitimate uh, a school of art and finally the san antonio museum put their head in the block and the, the director and it was a huge hit but it was, it, but there was resistance from the the Chicano community, uh, the the uh, uh, the academic community, because well, we love you as a comedian, but you know who are you to come in and tell us what's what about Chicano art? That was not my purpose. My purpose was to share the art and to get everybody to see it, you know. And so once they started unloading the crates, the the, the story changed. We've got more to get into with Cheech Marine when we come back from a quick break. How do you get your own museum with your name on the front and everything? Well, Cheech Marine knows he did it. He's living the dream. He'll tell us how it went down in just a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Cheech Marine. He's a comedy legend, a legend in the art world, and of course, one of our workingest working actors. You've seen him in From Dusk Till Dawn, Spy Kids, Tin Cup. He's in two new movies right now, Champions and Shotgun Wedding. Let's get into the rest of my conversation with Cheech Marine. So there is now a museum named after you in Riverside <laughs> that houses most of your collection. Um, did, did that really like go from being someone's idea to a museum in five years yeah that is incredible it is incredible i it is even more incredible because i'd been doing shows traveling shows before that you know but to have a permanent home for it I, that came like the like the house out of the, the falling from the sky in the wizard of oz you know it just uh what what do you mean i, I didn't understand what they wanted because i had i'd done a show at the riverside art museum which was a, i think works on paper from the collection it was a big hit it was the biggest show they had and and the town manager city manager came and and he says i have this idea we have this building which is a beautiful mid-century building it's right next door to the mission inn it was the town library and we're building a new library so we have to repurpose this building and we wanted to offer you the building for the collection you give us a collection and we'll permanently house it there in the thing. 
And I didn't understand what they were talking about when they, you want me to buy a museum? I'm doing okay. I don't know if I'm museum rich, but, you know, no, no, no. We want to give you the museum. Oh, okay. And this is one of those examples, again, of there was an opportunity, the door opened. It's not going to stay open forever. You got to walk through. And this was a good collection that I had spent, you know, 40 years putting together. And I was going to give it to them. Uh, Walk through. Did you immediately switch to collecting something else? No. No. Just, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back on bottle caps. You know, it was, it was, I just, you know, it was like, I, I recognized what it could be, you know, and it far exceeded my expectations. This year we were just voted uh, one of the top 50 museum shows in the world. Now, I saw uh, this gargantuan piece that is the, like, entryway piece yeah. for the museum. Uh-huh. looks pretty incredible. It is incredible. Can, can you describe it for me? It's a big lenticular piece by the brothers uh, De La Torre, Einar and Jaimex De La Torre. And they are the perfect Chicanos, half Mexican, half San Diego, you know. They're my favorite kind of Chicano. They don't know they're Chicanos yet. <laughs> And there's a, there's a bunch of them because it's a long trail and long, but it's always the same source of inspiration, description of culture. You know, whether it's uh, intimate moments or big public moments, but it's it's told in a thousand shades of brown. You know, this 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 whole story and it keeps continuing on to this day. And and L- uh, lenticular means that's like sport flicks, baseball cards, yeah, or like those or like of, prayer cards with the with the Virgin Mary yeah, on them. Eyes of Jesus that follow you around, and it's a, it's a prismatic uh, uh, plastic basically that shifts the images shift as you move around the the piece, and it's a huge. It's twenty six by thirteen feet, and it goes up through the second floor. We had to cut out the floor of the second uh, story uh, to, in order to fit this piece. And it's incredible. What's depicted in this piece that's in the museum? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> there's so many images. It's Well, I, the, the main image is, is the there's a uh, Aztec goddess, which is the, I can't even remember the name, has three X's in it. And uh, the goddess of something or other, but it shifts. You don't even have fluent Spanish, much less fluent Nahuatl or whatever. No, no exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, they, they told me the name, but I can't. And, and, uh, and it shifts into like a, a power range. Thing it, it represented the, the continuation of that influence of, a, but it's a huge piece and it has thousands of images in it, and they'd shift to another thousand images, and people are just like, and that's the first thing you see when you come into the museum is this big, gigantic, heretofore never seen way of art, you know. So and so it knocks people out as well as it should, you know, because it's, it's it's spectacular. Riverside is, I just typed it into the internet, it's 55% Latino. What is the consequence of having a Chicano art museum in a place like that, that, you know, maybe had, I don't know, I went to the Bakersfield Art Museum one time, there was a show of paintings of whales, (laughs) and they were nice enough. Um, But like in a place where maybe they previously had a lot of shows of paintings of whales, what does it mean to have Carmen La Mascarza on the wall? It is... It is life changing for the for not only for the community but for the museum culture in general. You know, this is the first Chicano museum to, dedicated uh, solely to Chicano art. Uh, 
Uh, it is people, you know, I, I experienced that feeling going to different places with, with the first show, Chicano Visions, that I put out. You go to uh, Minneapolis, you know, it's not exactly the center of Chicano hood. Uh, you see them come out of the woodwork and they, <laughs> their reaction was all of where have all these people been? And for many of them, for most of them, it was the first time they'd been in a museum of any kind, you know, but because they, they, the, the, the mentality was that, this is not for us, you know, the stuff that we can't understand or it doesn't have pictures of saints in it or something, you know. But it, it really changed that. And uh, and it brought the community together in a very positive way, you know, because it's 50% Latino, as is the Inland Empire. So that's a big chunk of real estate, you know. So it gave them a source of pride, but also, hey, you know, this is, hey, that guy Santana, he can really play that guitar. I mean, it's the same thing, you know. All of a sudden, Santana meant rock and roll or rock or whatever that this thing was, you know. At the time. There's there's a scene there's a scene in Up in Smoke that I watched last night where you say your band plays all kinds of music from Santana to El Chicano. You know everything. <laughs> <laughs> there again, shallow and deep at the same time. I know I'm still, every day I realize that more and more, you know, that how that was our aesthetic, you know, shallow and deep at the same time. Do you think your artwork in museums would have the same impact if... Rather than being Cheech Marin, famous Hollywood actor, famous for being uh, chill and fun or a beatific smiling dad, yeah, um, you were like, I don't know. I was trying to think of a good example. Like Benjamin Bratt is from the neighborhood I grew up in, right? Yeah, uh-huh. And uh, he's Peruvian, I think. Yes. And uh, like if it was Benjamin Bratt's museum, the guy who's famous for being handsome and cool and intense. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it would have if it would be as welcoming. I don't know. I mean, like nothing against Benjamin Bratt, come on bullseye. Yeah. But. If you were a super intense, beautiful, famous dude, not yeah. that you're very beautiful. Uh, it goes without saying. Rather than a famous dude who's famous for being friendly. Yeah. I feel like it might be a different story. And I think it would be, you know, because, but I built up that reputation over a long period of time touring the art, the collection. You know, uh, at, at the point where we got to Riverside and they made this offer, we had played in over 50 museums, 50 from the Smithsonian on down. And uh, for uh, a museum culture that didn't want to do that, they didn't want to show private collections because I understand why. Uh, it usurps their curatorial power and blah, blah, blah. And, and who are you to set the standard? You don't have uh, unpaid student loans. You know, you're not like one of us. And uh, so it, it was a different, but the art spoke for itself. At some point, you know, is that when I, I'm not kidding when I say the first when in San Antonio I was in the loading dock when they brought in the crates and started opening them, and that whole thing changed, and, and so and so there was a it was a certain sec, segment of Chicano students that were very political. They were being urged to be political, and Chicano art is only political and blah blah blah. And so they, even in the in the face of free tacos and tequila and beer, they were still rowdy, rowdy. And they and they confronted me in, at, at the opening of the of the show. And I said, okay. Anybody has anything to say tomorrow morning at, at 9.30, and I made it 9.30 to weed out some most of the audience. Then, then 9.30, we're going to have an open forum here at the museum. And if you anybody got anything to say, 
That's the time to say it. So we, we convened and there was this big dais of, 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 you know, all the museum people and some artists and the, and the, and the, then the, the audience and the argument went back and forth and what, what, what was and what wasn't Chicano art. And, and so finally this older lady who looked like she had seen everything Chicano in her life and says, I have a question for John Valadez. And John Valadez was up there on the dais with me. And he's there's no more OG Chicano painter than John Valadez. I have a question for you. Uh, considering everything you've heard today, do you still consider yourself a Chicano painter? And John looked up at the ceiling for a minute and says, only if it bothers you. <laughs> <laughs> That's my hero. That's my hero. He's gonna be my hero. <laughs> like that. That is Chicano. That is Chicano. He expressed it perfect. One of it bothers you. And she said, "You know, okay, I get it." <laughs> but that is that is the Chicano intellectual debate. <laughs> well, Chich Marine, I sure appreciate you taking this time to be on the show. It's just, we've I've always wanted to talk to you. It was oh. really. Thank really you. great to get to do Thank it. Thank you very much. It was my honor to be here. And uh, everybody go down to Riverside and see the Cheech, which I got that name in as soon as I could. What should we call this thing? The Cheech. We have the broad. How about the Cheech? Yeah. <laughs> Cheech Marine, everyone. You can catch him in the new film Champions. That's in theaters right now. He also was in the film Shotgun Wedding, which is streaming right now on Amazon Prime. His museum is in Riverside, California. It's called The Cheech. It features over 700 works of Chicano art with more to come. You should go. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fund in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Things have been very busy here at my house, and I'll tell you why. It's because our company, Maximum Fund, is becoming a worker-owned cooperative. We're so proud. I'm so excited to become a worker-owner. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, among my fellow worker owners to be are senior producer Kevin Ferguson and producers Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by the great band The Go Team. Songs called Huddle Formation. Go check out The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in all those places. Follow us. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 